0: invite you to open the scriptures with me once again and open them to a specific passage within the larger uh, section of scripture that we read moments ago, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. We continue our study of Mark today. We've been looking at the gospel of Mark, uh, waking up to Jesus. Mark chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 13 uh, through 17. And placing it within its larger context here in this particular gospel. So as you find your place there in Mark chapter 2, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's word. Mark 2, beginning in verse 13. The scriptures read this way. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's bow in prayer. And Lord, we do ask you to guide us now in rightly understanding your word. Lord, that we might have a better understanding of who Christ is. Lord, that we might know you more and long to live for you and with you forever. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Do you remember that old southern gospel song, Old Time Religion? That song will just make you feel good, will it not? Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. If I had Uh, the voice of the Caravans, or of the Statler Brothers, or even of uh, Rob Matthews, then I would uh, sing it for you right now. Unfortunately for me, I don't have one of those voices. Fortunately for you, I know I don't have one of those voices, so I'm not going to do that. But let me invite you to listen to some of the lyrics uh, from that hymn. It was good enough for my mother. It's good enough for my mother. It's good enough for my mother. It's good enough for me. It was good enough for my father. Good enough for my father. It's good enough for me. It was good for Paul and Silas. Good for Paul and Silas. It's good enough for me. It was good for Hebrew children. Good for Hebrew children. Good for Hebrew children. It's good enough for me. It will do when I'm dying. It will do when I'm dying. It will take us all to heaven. It's good enough for me. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Beautiful tune. Foot-tapping song. Certainly, that song may be good enough for us, but the problem is we are not good enough for it, right? Because there's no gospel in it. And the truth, according to the Scriptures, According to this passage that we've read this morning, definitely within the larger context of this portion of God's word, we see that Jesus didn't come establishing and affirming and upholding the religious of his day. No, Jesus comes confronting the religious. Jesus confronts the religious. And already in chapter 2 of Mark's 16 chapter gospel, tension is brewing. Brewing between the religious leaders of Jesus' day and Jesus Himself. And this isn't like tension between two uh, competing uh, world religions, uh, say, uh, Islam and and, and Hinduism in India today. No, this is tension between uh, the Jewish religious leaders and the very ones sent from God to save the Jewish people. I think, church, you have... Probably heard me say something like this from time to time: the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is the central character of God's Word. And the Gospel of Jesus is the central story of, of God's Word. That everything before the arrival of Jesus on the scene, as, uh, as, as uh, revealed in the Gospel books, is preparatory in some way for the coming of the Messiah law that was given to Moses, the wisdom literature, the prophetic books, all of this preparing us in some way for the arrival of of Jesus. And if that's the case, how could, could these teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, verse 16, who were so familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, who were the separated ones who controlled the the teaching in the synagogues and regarded all of the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God, how could these religious folks miss the arrival of Jesus on the scene? How could these ones who knew the the text so well miss the author of the text when he showed up in human flesh? You see, they missed it because they had missed the heart of God. And reduced knowing God to following the letter of the law. Failing to realize that God was inviting them into relationship with him. Inviting them to know him and to to walk with him. And the truth is that God has always been more interested in the condition of the hearts of his people. Than in their outward acts of obedience void of inner faith. Now hear me on this, because that's a central point, I believe, of of God's Word, that God has always been more interested in in the hearts of His people than He has been in outward obedience that is void of inner faith in Him. King David recognized this, led him to write in his prayer of confession, recorded in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, You, God, do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And certainly that needs to be understood within its context. David is not saying that God doesn't delight in sacrifice. God requires us to make sacrifices to him and for him. But they are always the overflow of a heart that is devoted to him. A heart that is broken before him, a heart that longs to be in relationship with him, and religion without a relationship or without the involvement of our hearts is like a husband who lies to his wife by telling her that he loves her and then going out and having an extramarital affair it 's like a sister who angrily says to her her brother i 'm sorry.' Only to avoid a paddling. It's like a politician who campaigns on empty promises. It's like an employee who secretly tells customers that they would be better off to shop elsewhere. See, religion reduces God's words to a set of regulatory rules right versus wrong, an attempt at self justification. The religious man says, I obey in order to be accepted. And yet Jesus comes saying that that is not enough. That you've already fallen short. That you haven't measured up. That no one has obeyed perfectly. If you are depending on your efforts, then you are doomed from the very start. So stop working for God's favor. Stop working for god's favor because you cannot earn it you can't earn it the truth is that god is not interviewing for job positions in heaven he doesn't grade on a curve his standard is perfection perfect obedience righteousness sinlessness for all have sinned right romans 3 23 for all have sinned the young and old the rich and poor Male, female, boy, girl, Asian, American, Hispanic. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one has measured up. Every one of us has broken his law, broken his standard, rebelled against him, gone our own, our own way. The truth, according to Scripture, is that God is a perfect God. He is a holy God. There is none like him. And he is a just God. And because he is just, he cannot tolerate sin in in heaven. For the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, the earnings for sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, the gospel cannot be earned. Righteousness cannot be earned. Forgiveness cannot be earned. It's not the reward for a life well lived. It's not the result of acts of charity or deeds of kindness. It cannot be obtained through our efforts. Apart from perfect obedience to God's standard. Anyone here perfect? Apart from perfect obedience to God's standard, forgiveness, eternal life is only found through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ see, Jesus comes confronting the religious who are depending on their own efforts, but he also, according to the Scriptures, comes confronting the irreligious. Comes confronting the religious, but also the irreligious. Jesus confronts the irreligious. He is an offense to those who are relying on their own efforts for self-justification, but he is also an offense to those who refuse the notion of an authoritative God altogether. Mark chapter 2, verse 14, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him, presumably leaving his former way of living behind. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. Tax collectors and sinners. These would have been people who would have been regarded as the irreligious of Jesus' day. Those who weren't interested in religion. And yet Jesus confronts them and invites them to follow after him. You see, tax collectors in first century Galilee were about as popular as the IRS is today. Actually, even less so. Because not only did they have a reputation for padding their own pockets through their position, but they also uh, were supporters of uh, Herod Antipas in Galilee, who was a collaborator with Rome. Thus, they were indirectly supporting Rome, and devout Jews hated those pagan intruders from Rome. And here Jesus comes, confronting these folks. Like politics, religion is often polarizing. The religious accuse the irreligious of being evil and immoral and pagan. The irreligious accuse the the religious of of being judgmental, being close-minded, being bigots. Sound familiar? Two groups at odds with each other, often blaming one another, rarely finding something they can stand together on and agree on. The religious value Moralism and working for God's favor, the irreligious value, inclusiveness, and open-mindedness, pluralism, self-discovery, finding what is right for you. And here's the kicker, that Jesus comes confronting both of them. It doesn't come confirming or affirming either, either one of them. And together, these two groups, who rarely get along, suddenly find common ground in their opposition to this this Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Mark gives us a window into what is happening here early in Jesus' ministry as a result of his, his teaching and his miracles. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians coming together to plot how they can get rid of this Jesus who is confronting them. Pharisees certainly representing the religious. But the Herodians staunch supporters of Herod and his family. thereby supporting the Romans and that whole lifestyle of immorality and paganism and worshipping false gods. Two groups that that despised each other, that never got along with each other, suddenly finding common ground to stand on in opposition to Jesus. I don't know your tendencies. I don't know if your tendency is more toward religion. If so, then stop working for God's favor. It can't be earned. But if it is more toward irreligion, then stop playing God. Stop playing God. The truth is there is only one God, only one who rules and reigns on high. There's only one sovereign king who sets the standard, who calls the shots, who is the almighty judge and the almighty maker of heaven and earth. And he calls us to to follow him, to know him, to live for him. The legitimacy and the legality of President Trump's uh, recent executive order uh, concerning immigration and, and travel, dominated news reports and, uh, over the past week, uh, resulting in three judges, right, from the, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit uh, to oppose uh, uh, this, this executive order. Questions were asked, who has what authority and what evidence supports that particular authority, well, church, I want you to know this, that the Bible is crystal clear when it announces who has authority. Jesus Christ has all authority. He rules and reigns on high. And the consistent message of God's word is that he has authority. Mark wants us to know as his readers that Jesus has authority, that there is none like him, his. His life and his teachings, the, Entire record of his life and his teachings support that truth claim. Everything he says and does, even what is not said, what is only implied, supports that claim about who he is. Supports his own claim, his own words to his followers, recorded in John chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. See, according to the Scriptures, our efforts fall short. Our efforts don't get us there. Jesus comes confronting, confronting us. He comes confronting the religious, saying, you're not good enough. You've already fallen short. You haven't measured up. And He comes confronting the irreligious, saying, you are wrong. You do need a savior. And in their own ways, each path is a path of trying to become our own savior and our own God. Each is the path of self-righteousness. Yet Jesus comes calling us to acknowledge our inadequacies and to embrace his sufficiency. Jesus invites the broken to receive his grace. Comes confronting the religious and the irreligious, but he comes inviting the broken, all who are broken to receive his grace. Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Listen to Jesus' response. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous sinners. Jesus is not saying here that there are a class of people, the righteous, who don't need Him. That would be counter to the very reason He he came. That would be inconsistent with the message of the Gospel, the message of Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. But I think the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is in His comparison to Himself as a doctor. See, we don't go to the doctor until we recognize that we can't take care of ourselves. That we have an issue going on in our own lives that is beyond self-management. And we need help. We don't go to the doctor for the doctor to tell us, yes, you are sick. No, we, we already know we're sick. We're going for help. We need intervention. We need medication. We need direction. We need a treatment plan. Likewise, in this analogy, there are a class of people in the world, a class that Jesus calls the religious, that that though they need to see a spiritual doctor, they're unwilling to do so. According to the Scriptures, we need help. Our efforts fall short. The Gospel says we need help. We're spiritually sick and we need a Savior. So let's admit that Our spiritual sickness. Admit your spiritual sickness. That's a myth that we need help. We need the great physician. We need the doctor who rules and reigns on high to intervene. Because we know we can't save ourselves. We know we cannot fix ourselves. The truth is that Jesus comes not for those who help themselves he comes to save those who cannot help themselves let's admit our spiritual sickness as sinners against god and then let's receive god's intervention let's receive his help let's receive his intervention for he is the god who sent his one and only son to take on human flesh to live the life that we can never live so that he could die the death that we deserve to die We were drowning in sin, deserving of the wrath of God, and yet God stepped in, in his mercy to save us. For it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 is, by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not of yourselves. This is not something you can do on your own. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So let's not rely on our own efforts. Let's not rely on our own accomplishments or attempts at righteousness. Let's rely on Jesus, the one who accomplishes for us what we could never do on our own. Let's rely on the one who provides salvation and forgiveness of sins for us. For through him, Church, through Him, we can know, in our identification with Him in faith, we can know that God is pleased with us. And then, we can do those good works that God prepared in advance for us to do, not in an effort to earn God's favor, but because we have His favor, and we are compelled to live for Him, motivated by His grace day after day. So as believers in Jesus who have received God's gracious intervention, we can rest in Jesus. Let's rest in Jesus and his accomplished work for us on on our behalf. Rest in him. Not a rest that produces apathy in us, but a rest that produces awe of him. Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, the tension continues to build between the Religious and the irreligious coming together in opposition to Jesus. Jesus is confronted and he says to the religious, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, a reference to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus ultimately is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Let's rest in him. Rest in him, for he comes confronting the religious as well as the irreligious, but he comes inviting the broken to receive his grace. Who are you? Where do you you land on that spectrum? Church, aren't you glad that Jesus came for sinners? Jesus came for sinners. He came for sinners, extending us the grace of God. Father, we thank you for the opportunity once again to open the pages of your word. To read, to reflect on, to digest the truths that you have given us. Father, may they be continually before us today. Or may they be in our minds and on our hearts. May you continually call us by your spirit to follow Jesus Christ and it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.